Today we will be primarily in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. Again, today we'll primarily be in Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 25. Uh, Quick second here. Grab a little H2O. So before moving on to the next section of our series on the gospel-centered family, let's have a quick recap of what we said last week. We said in, in discussing the origins of the family, looking in Genesis chapter 1, we said that there were three primary key aspects of the origins of the family that we discerned from chapter 1. And that was that God is the author of the family. He's the originator. Therefore, God is the one who has control and authority over every aspect of the family. He is the one who defines and sets the parameters and the direction for the family. No one else gets to do that. God and God alone has that authority. The second thing we said is that the family is composed of men and women, young and old, who are imprinted with the image of God in their lives, meaning that the purpose of the family is to reflect God's glory in this world and to to spread the glorious image of God through the world, through procreation, multiplication, and discipleship. And then the third aspect was that the family is created for mission, and that flows from the image of God, which means that we don't just naturally procreate disciples anymore, but we have to actively be engaged in the mission of the church, in the mission of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's how we carry out the multiplication of the image of God in this world. So we said those are the three core aspects of the origins of the family, and these are foundational elements that are kind of laid out, and they remain for everything else we discuss throughout this series. Every other topic we talk about between marriage and the role of the husband, the role of the wife, the role of parenting and children and grandparenting and singleness, it, like all of this is founded on the premise of, uh, of God's original design and authority over the family, right? So today we are moving into a section of this series where we'll be focusing on marriage. And the reason for that is, well, simply put, it's the next thing that happens in the Bible. This is the next thing that happens after Genesis 1. Genesis 2, there's a whole zoomed-in focus on the creation of the institution of marriage. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the significance of marriage according to Scriptures. That's our goal and our purpose today. And then what we'll be doing in the next few weeks is then starting to look at what that means for husbands and wives within that institution of marriage. Today we're laying down, once again, foundational principles that will show us the significance of marriage. So, here's the question. What is the significance? What's the significance of marriage? And is there any? Is marriage given to us by God simply for the act of procreation? Is that the only significance? Is it just a conventional norm? Is marriage just a tool that might have some usefulness depending on where we are in history? Is, is marriage just a part of a cultural system? Like those are some of the answers that you would find today, right? And, and it's actually a legitimate question to pose. And, and here's the reason why it's a legitimate question to pose is because we know that there are some things that God gave in the Old Testament that have lost, if you will, they, they, they have been replaced, right? So, for instance, as a male, you might be in here and, and not be circumcised today, right? You might be, you might not be. But your circumcision has no effect on your relationship to God. But under the old covenant, in order to have a relationship with God as a male, you had to be circumcised. So that was a very vital institution under the Old Covenant that has been replaced by something in the New. So is that that the case for marriage? Was marriage something that was part of an Old Covenant system and then replaced by the New or replaced by society today? Has it run its usefulness and therefore we have to move on? Because many people today, perhaps even spread throughout the church, would say that marriage has run its course. In fact, I would say, if not most, I, I don't know if I can say most, 
But I, I can absolutely say that a good deal of people, very many, a plurality, a, a, a very vocal, influential group of people would say that marriage has lost significance, that it is outdated, that it is no longer useful. That is why people now are leaning towards cohabitation. Cohabitation is living with someone whom you have some romantic attachment to, you have sexual relationship with, you have some kind of agreed upon format of living together, but there is no commitment in the relationship. There is this study done in 2002. Tim Keller outlines this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. The study done in 2002 was called Why Men Won't Commit. Specifically, he was looking at men. This is the conclusion of the study. It says, cohabitation gives men, listen to this, regular access to the domestic and sexual ministrations of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and continue to look around for a better partner. That was the result of this survey and this study that was done. Pew Research data shows us, I can't remember what year this was from, but it was sometime around that same area, so early 2000s, so this percentage has potentially grown. Pew Research says that 40% of Americans believe that marriage has become or is becoming obsolete. As one person put it in their response to a survey, he said, in this country, we have kind of failed with marriage. We're so protective of this really sacred yet failed institution. There's got to be a new model. So, is marriage totally insignificant in our day? Can we just move on? Can we move to the cohabitation model? Is that what we can do? But here's the question. I think there's another equally destructive side to the coin. See, those people in that group are saying that this biblical, as we're going to see here, this biblical concept, by the way, I'll just go ahead and give away the answer. No, marriage isn't insignificant. So I know I'm already, like, I know, I know. I'm supposed to, like, tease it out, but you already know what the answer is, right? So it's like you can't do too many cliffhanger things, right? So one corrupted view says that marriage is insignificant, is totally obsolete. We can move past it and come up with a new model. There's another equally destructive view, and that is people who put too much significance into their marriage, what I would call idolatrous significance. This is people, these are people who turn their marriages and their partners and their spouses into their everything. So their partner is placed on a pedestal. And usually this works for a few months. Oh, aren't they just so wonderful? Oh, just look how absolutely beautiful they are. They're just shining and sparkling and their smile is just so radiant and all of their words are kind and they never pass gas and do anything bad like that, right? You know? And that that usually works out for a few months and then reality hits and that person doesn't fill all the boxes the way you thought because honestly, no one can live up to idolatrous desires. And if we overly romanticize marriage, a spouse, a partner, our family, our children, it holds for all of it, but especially within marriage. If we overly romanticize marriage and a husband or a wife into something that they were never intended to be, then we are doomed from the start in any relationship. Now, I mean, look, there's a natural level of disenchantment in our relationships. Everything starts so brand new and wonderful and fresh and it's got that new relationship smell, if we were to call it that. But the danger becomes when we invest ourselves so totally into that feeling, that magnificent feeling of elation, and we're always looking to get back to that intoxicating high. When we're doing that, we are setting up the relationship for failure. We are putting idolatrous significance on the relationship. I return to Tim Keller, who has this fantastic quote. He says, There is an illusion that if we find our one true soulmate, everything wrong with us will be healed. But that makes the lover into God, and no human being can live up to that. So we began with this question, what is the significance of marriage? And the world seems to at least have two answers. I I believe that the world has two answers. The first is there's none. There's no significance. Marriage is outdated. We need to move on to something new that's part of a bygone era. Let's get past marriage and bury it and kill it and do all of that. If you want to get married, that's fine. But as a society, we're moving on. So there's that perspective. And the second perspective 
It's marriage is everything to me. It is my total, absolute significance. I find all of my meaning in my marriage. It's all I've ever dreamed of. And see, here's the funny part. These two rep- responses seem to be diametrically opposed, right? Don't they seem to like, com- be on complete opposite ends of the spectrum? They do. But I believe that they both have the same core. I believe that they both have the same element right at the root that ends up feeding both perspectives, and it's the idea of self-fulfillment. See, the perspective number one says marriage has no significance. Why do they say that? Because I, notice that the self-fulfillment, I don't want to be tied down. I don't want to be inhibited. I don't want to be restricted. I find my deepest self-fulfillment and satisfaction by sowing my wild oats, by conquering one person after another by putting notches on my bedpost or my belt or whatever it is that people do, right? So there's the self-fulfillment and the unattachment. But perspective number two, it's still self-fulfillment, but it's self-fulfillment in the attachment. The person there is seeking an idealistic perfection wrapped up in the identity of the other person. Why? Because All my hopes and all of my dreams from childhood are wrapped up in the romantic ideal. This happens when we watch too many Disney movies. It's really true. It happens when we watch too many romantic comedies and Disney movies. And we get fed from Hollywood all the time that what true love is, is a feeling. True love isn't a feeling because feelings come and go. Feelings are high and low. And if I were Dr. Seuss, I would come up with something else really cool right there. But I can't. But if we have that romantic idealism, and notice ideal, idolatry, it's just all right there. If we idolize marriage and romanticism in the high elated motion, what we're doing is we're seeking self-fulfillment. We're putting ourselves at the center and really using our spouses, using our children in order to feed that idea of self. So, I believe that self-fulfillment is at the root of both of those wrong, unbiblical perspectives. So where can we turn to for a corrective? The Word of God. (laughs) That's where we get to turn to. We get to turn to the, the Word of God. If we want to be able to turn away from the counterfeit ideas and conceptions that we see about marriage today, the goal is then to look at the genuine thing. And so wonderfully laid out, God talks a lot about marriage. He talks a lot about marriage right from the beginning. And he not only talks a lot about marriage directly, he also then uses marriage as illustrations for a lot of other teachings that he wants to give, as we're going to start seeing next week. But today, let's look at the creation of marriage. Let's look at where the seeds were laid so that we can find out, like, we can, we can really answer this question, what is the significance of marriage? I believe that there are at least five things that we can see in this text that make marriage significant, that give us the, a significant identity of marriage. At least five things here, and there could be more. But we're going to read from chapter 15 through verses 25 in Genesis chapter 2. Verses 15 through 25, I should say. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, uh, shall you surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. 
Heavenly Father, may your word be powerful and true to us. And just the reading of your word, Lord, may we see just wonderful, incredible, beautiful jewels and richness of your divine plan, will, and mind. Father, may, may the marriages that we have here, may the marriages that we'll enter into, whether been married for 40 years, four months, four days. Lord, may we, may we seek out Your truth, Your design, Your plan, Your will. And Lord, may we, if we're here today, and maybe we've undergone the, the terrors of a divorce, the pain of a loss of a spouse through death. Lord, may we still hold firm and strongly to Your truths about marriage so that we can teach them to others, so that we can counsel others, our children, grandchildren, our friends. May we not just learn Your truth for ourselves in, in our own lives, Lord, but to be able to multiply truth throughout people in this world that we know, we love, and we care for. Amen. So like I said, there are five significant aspects to marriage that I see in this text. Today we're really going to focus on three of them because two of them we're going to address in, in, in later messages. But I think it's important to still highlight them here and then just kind of bookmark them and save them for later. So there, there's going to be five. Like I said, three of them we're going to dig into. Two of them we will sort of mention, say a quick comment, and then save for later. So the first significant aspect of marriage that we see in this text is that marriage was created for complementary fellowship. Marriage was created for complementary fellowship. In verse 18, we read these words. It is not good that the man should be alone. Do you see the significance of that short phrase? It is not good that the man should be alone. Why is that a significant phrase right here in verse 18? The text forces us to stop. There's like a wall that we careen into. If you were reading from verse 1 and chapter 1, you just read and through, say, I'm going to read the first 12 chapters of Genesis. The first 12, 11 chapters of Genesis kind of create one overarching text, if you will. It's one big block of text. So I would always recommend read chapters 1 through 11 in one sitting if you can. So you're reading along, you're reading along, you're reading along. Verse 18 comes, there should be a stop. Why? Because God says it's not good that man should be alone. And that's significant because in chapter 1, we saw God say this seven times. Seven times He says it was good. Or at least six times He said after creation it was good. And then the seventh time, looking back at all of His creation, He says He looked at everything that He made and saw that it was very good. So seven times God pronounces goodness as the evaluation over his creation, then all of a sudden, we get to verse 18 here in chapter 2, and we read these words, this is not good. This is not good. And so if God is given an evaluation and saying this is not good, ears perk up, (laughs) right? We stop in our space. Okay, if God says it's not good, it's probably not good. (laughs) All right, I'm going to change that. It's not, not probably not good. It's definitely not good. So, what is the not good condition here? That man should be alone. So God comes up with a plan. The plan is, well, I'm going to make a helper, if you will, suitable for him. Corresponding to him. And then there's this really interesting section, verses 19 through 20. Where it says that God brings this parade, if you will, of all of the creatures and all of the animals before Adam. And it says that even though as these, the, the dogs coming up, right? And maybe there's a bond. I mean, that's why we have dogs. We have a bond with dogs today, right? Maybe Adam had a bond with the dog. I don't know what type of dog it was. It was the proto-dog. It was a mixture of all of the dog species that we have today. And the dog comes up and it's just, you know, get the wiggly little ears. Maybe they're spiky ears, whatever. It's wagging his tail, you know. Comes up, gives a little kiss, a lick, nuzzles the nose. It's just wonderful and beautiful. And so you can imagine smile glowing on Adam's face, yet there's disappointment in his heart. Why? Because as great as dogs and cats and whatever else your pets are, goats and chickens and mooses, mises, moosin? Moose, just moose. Should be moosin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it, moosin. As wonderful as pets can be, 
They are not suitable partners in this thing called life. They are not suitable to give us complementary fellowship. They don't accurately correspond to us. And so, God brings this parade of animals before Adam, the man. None of them are suitable. And God causes this deep sleep to fall upon Adam where he does this wonderful procedure where literally out of the man, he forms the corresponding partner. And so he makes this female into a, what's called, what we see here is a, a, a suitable helper, uh, fit for the man. There are two words here that really help us to see the insight into God's creative plan here. The first is the word helper, which comes from the Hebrew word eretz. Do you know what this word is often used for? word is often used to talk about the Lord being the helper of Israel. For instance, Psalm 115, 9 through 11 says, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help. All of those times it says help, it's saying Eretz, the same word that's used for Eve right here. Eretz, the Lord is their Eretz, their help and their shield. Thus, when we read the term helper here about Eve, it's not, not a servant, not a slave. If, if, if God wanted to create the woman to be a servant or a slave, he would have used the word servant or slave. There's plenty suitable words for servant or slave, but he used the term helper, which in his divine plan would be a term that's used for him. So this term helper is actually a conveyance of strength. Women are created to be strong, supportive Helpers in almost a militaristic sense because that's what's used for God oftentimes. When it talks about God being the helper of Israel, it's the helper and the deliverer. The one who comes to rescue Israel, right? Now, I'm not saying that women fulfill the exact same role of God, but what I am saying is that the term has this conveyance of strength, not weakness. This conveyance of, of course, equality with the husband as well. Not... not, um, Uh, having a status lesser than the husband in any way, shape, or form. She is a helper that is fit for the man, meaning literally the opposite of the man. That's what the term there, when it says that she was fit, she was made as a helper fit for Adam. The other way we can think about it is corresponding to, but the literal rendering is opposite to the man. So what does that mean? That means that the woman was created to be essentially a second piece of a puzzle, Right? That the husband was standing there as one beautiful, wonderful, perfect creation of God, and yet not fully and totally completed in his design. In order for the man to be completed in his design, God had to create a second person to be able to complement him, fit together, correspond to, because she was different than him. She wasn't the same as him. And that is so absolutely important. Because what we're doing here is, is what, we're, what we're seeing here is that God has this intentional design of two people being completely and totally the same in status and yet completely and totally unique and different as well at the same time. The same and yet unique. The same in, 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 their, in their standing before God and being imprinted with the image of God. The same in their strength and carrying out ministry and work together. And yet... In such a way that the man can't do what the woman can do and the woman can't do what the man can do. And that's why gender identity is a big issue today. That's why, scripturally speaking, we have to stand firm on the fact that God knew what He was doing when He created gender. We don't, again, going back to what we said last week, we don't get to make up the rules. We don't get to create new systems. We don't get to create new critical theories that then define new terms. God is the one who creates, and He creates that gender for a purpose. And here's the thing, right? As soon as you start pulling at those eternal truths that God has imbued into creation, the whole family system falls apart. That's all I'm going to say about that for now. Take, that, take with that what you will. Um, so God here, He creates the man and the woman. And I love Adam's response. Hear this? It's so beautiful, isn't it? This is the response that every man should say to his wife at least once a week. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
Just imagine. We remember, we had that parade of animals coming to Adam. And in that whole parade, there was not one who was suitable to be a, a helper fit for him, right? And you can just imagine like the disappointment that's kind of creeping up on his heart as the antelope comes by. And then, right? And then, and then I don't know, the chihuahua, the moose the moosin walk on by. And as much as he loves all of them and he names them, and, you know, he's got this great relationship with the animals. There's still disappointment kind of aching on his heart. When's there, when's there going to be a suitable helper for me? When's there going to be one who really compliments and, and, and brings me to the completed design, Lord? Who, when, she, when is this one going to come? And then he sees her as God literally brings her. It's almost like God is bringing her down the altar here. Do you see that? That the, the, the Lord brings her to the man. And then, she, and then he says, this is the first marriage ceremony. This is the first wedding ceremony. He says, at last. At last. Bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. What a beautiful response to meeting his life partner corresponding to him as a helper who's fit for him the same as him in so many ways and yet so unique and different as well doing things that he can't do and him being able to do things that she can't do and working together harmoniously and that brings us to the second significant aspect of marriage so the first was there's complementary fellowship designed within marriage the second is there's cooperation in ministry we see this in verse 15 actually. So verse 15 comes before the creation of the woman, but in verse 15 and in verse 16, God gives this charge to Adam. He says, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to, there's a purpose, to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, so then he gives a command that is a part of this working and keeping the garden, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. I know we understand the tragedy that comes after, but let's pretend there's no tragedy right now, there's no fall this is the intention of God in creating Adam and Eve. What's the intention? Ministry. Adam is given a responsibility for ministry in the garden. To work it and to keep it means to, to tend it and protect it. To, to lovingly care over it. Adam was a gardener. It's the first job ever in humanity. He was a gardener. Isn't that awesome to think of? He was a gardener. And his job was to when the weeds were growing up, you know, to remove the weeds. To tend to it. To help grow the trees. To maybe plant new ones when the seeds fell. To bring them, to collect them, to gather them, to keep expanding the garden, right? We talked about that a little bit last week. He had a ministry, but then the second part of it, when it says to keep it, it, it actually has this connotation of defending and protecting that garden. To keep evil away from it. To keep the command of God faithful in the midst of that garden. So those are the two ministry responsibilities given to Adam. And then right after that, in, verses, in verse 16, this is when the God says, it is not good that the man should be alone. So what's that telling us? It's telling us that she wasn't just created for companionship, but she was also created to fulfill the ministry that God gave to him. She was created, and this is why that word helper as a strong militaristic term is very powerful when you tie it in to Defending and protecting the garden, the woman's role and responsibility was to work with and help and support her husband in carrying out his ministry. She had a ministry with him, corresponding to him, cooperating together for the purpose of tending the garden and protecting it, for the purpose of growing God's original work and design all throughout the world and protecting it from evil. She has this awesome responsibility. And the indication here, the implication, I should say, is that the man can't do this alone. That, that he can't carry out this purpose alone. That he needs a helper suitable for him to be able to carry out this ministry. And this doesn't change today. If a man is called to a ministry today and he does not have the help and the support of his wife and they are not cooperating in that ministry together and if the wife has a calling of ministry in her life 
and the man is, is not taking that leadership and supporting her and empowering her and equipping her and helping to, 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 to free her up to be able to do that ministry, if they are not cooperating together in ministry, let me tell you, the ministry will fail, the ones who are ministered to will crumble, and God will not be glorified. Ministry is created to be done in tandem. 20% of pastors today are divorced. You know that? 20% of pastors today are divorced. 30% of pastors have no satisfaction in their marriage and in their family life. I'm going to take a stab at it now. I'm not going to say this is all-encompassing, but I would say that one of the main and major reasons for that taking place is because their personal ideas of ministry have been placed primary over the ministry that he has for his family. I, I really believe that that's the reason for it. Because if you're not going into ministry together, and this isn't just pastoral ministry, but it's, it's the most prevalent, right? Because all of work in God's kingdom is ministry. Not just pastoral work is ministry. All work in God's kingdom is ministry. So if you're feeling inclined to do hospitality, to do music, to, to invite people into your home, to lead movie nights, to help in the youth group, to help with media and music and all of that, all, all different aspects are ministry. To help with monetary things and organizational things. Everything is ministry. But if you're striving to pursue something like that and you're not working in tandem with your spouse, then the first thing you have to do is step back from ministry and reassess the priorities. Have to do that. Because if you go into ministry without working together with your spouse, cooperating together, it will fail. You will fail. The people you're trying to minister to will suffer and marriage will eventually dissolve or at least be disastrous for the rest of your life. So, I mean, look at, look at 1 Timothy 3, 4-5. through 5. This continues to carry forward because this is what Paul says is, is one of the main qualifications to be a pastor in the church. He says that the pastor must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. It's not just children. The whole household is, is the whole family system, including the marriage. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household... How will he care for God's church? How, if the person does not know how to minister to his own wife, will that man care for God's church? So men, pour into your wife. Talk to them. Listen to them. Prioritize them. Make plans. Seek her out first. And we're going to do a lot more of this when we talk about the role of husbands in marriage. You know, do, do simple things. Give a little massage on the neck, on the back. Right? Spend time, quality time. Invest in your wife. Make your wife your first and primary ministry. And cooperate together in ministry. And yes, I'm putting this task on you men. Because it's your job to lead your wife and to lead your family. So, I'm putting that task upon you and the burden upon you to fulfill this cooperative aspect. Okay, so that's the second significant aspect of marriage. So the first was um, complementary fellowship. The second was cooperation in ministry. The third, and this is one I'm going to say, I'm going to say for later, is the creation of disciples. The third is the creation of disciples. We go back to chapter 1 to talk about multiplying and filling the earth. That's not just physically, okay? Anyone can fill the earth physically, it really doesn't take much work, to be honest. I do not believe that in any stretch of the mind, God only cared about physical filling of the earth. He cared about multiplying disciples. And we multiply disciples when we prioritize training up our children in the ways of the Lord. Shelve it, let's save it. It's the third implication for significance of marriage, but we're going to have an entire message on that on November 17th when we have child dedication, right? Appropriate. The fourth significance of marriage is a commitment to trust. A commitment to trust. Read this in verse 25. Isn't it weird the way that this section ends? Strange, isn't it? And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's a funny way to end a section, isn't it? Right? I had a pastor once, and he's from the South He's from South Carolina. He used to say, naked. Naked. I can't remember when he preached on 
on this. I, he preached on this, and he just he said naked like like four thousand times in the message. And I just had the hardest time paying attention to anything else. I just thought it was hilarious. Naked. He said it like that. They're both naked. Okay. Well, they were. They were both naked, and yet they were not ashamed. Verse twenty-five. What's what's happening here? Well, why weren't they ashamed? Right. Let's be honest, if all of a sudden our clothes were just disappear off us in a moment, what's the first thing we would do? Right? Right? Be grabbing these pages. Where's that doxology? You know? right? So we'd pull the sound panels off the wall. Right? We would all be like, we'd feel uncomfortable, fearful, ashamed. And by the way, it's not like ashamed in the sense of, you know, like, I feel shame because I've done something wrong, but shame in the sense that you want to cover, you just want to cover yourself up, right? That's, that's kind of like the, the conveyance of, of the shame here. Well, why weren't they ashamed? Why didn't they respond the way that we would respond right now? Well, first of all, they did have perfect bodies. This is right after creation, but I don't think that's the point here. I think that's a point, but I don't think it's the point, okay? And here's the reason why. Because this passage was written for people after the fall who don't have perfect bodies. This teaching here is wrapped up in this section where it talks about being a one flesh union. Verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And right after that, this one flesh union is the thing that causes them to be naked and not ashamed. And this one flesh union continues to be the primary text of marriage in Matthew 19, when Jesus talks about it, see it next week. Ah, in Ephesians 5, we'll see that next week as well. right? So, I don't believe that this nakedness and this unashamedness is something that was only for Adam and Eve because they had perfect bodies. I think that there was something else there, and it had to do with their spiritual state. And it had to do with their spiritual state. It had to do with the fact that they had no reason to fear one another. They had no reason to doubt one another. They had no reason to distrust one another. There was no reason for insecurity. Because there was no sin in the world. There was no wondering. There was no challenging whisper in their mind. There was no idea like, is she judging me right now? Does she, does she think that I'm, I, don't admit, I don't fit up to her bill of what a man's supposed to look like? And likewise, she's standing there and saying, is he thinking about someone else? Is he considering another person that he slept with before he slept with me? Right? Those are the reasons that we have ashamedness or shamefulness when we stand naked before another person because we are distrusting. And sometimes we have good reason to distrust. We are broken. We have good reason to be broken. We ultimately do not have unity with our spouses because of sin, because of things in our own lives, because of things that have happened to us in our own lives. But because there is no fear or insecurity or sin in this world, they're able to stand before each other absolutely naked and absolutely unashamed. There was perfect trust between husband and wife in this moment. Such perfect trust to the point where they could be vulnerable with one another. I mean, nakedness is the most vulnerable position you can be in. They're totally exposed and bare before one another, and yet there is zero hint of fear and doubt. Now, what a beautiful goal to strive for in our marriages. What a beautiful thing to pray for in our marriages, to hope for in our marriages. I mean, I, I think that one of the goals of marriage is to move towards this willingness, this ability to lay ourselves bare before our spouses, spiritually, physically, emotionally, and have absolute trust that they only care for us. No level of distrust, no level of disunity, no level of chastising wonderment and challenging thoughts going through our minds and our brains. And it's something that has to be worked for. It's something that has to be worked towards. It's not a goal that can be achieved on the first day of marriage. It's something that is fought for, hard fought for. 
And there are little places where we stumble over that. And we fall and we hope to pick ourselves back up and come to the place where we can stand before our spouse and be naked, vulnerable, totally exposed, laying everything bare and having no fear of of, of shame or doubt or worrying. And imagine the, the freedom that that can give you in your relationship. Just picture that. Picture that there's at least one person in this world that you can lay everything out to. You can share every deepest, darkest, most painful experience you've ever had or thought you've ever had and know that that person only loves you, only cares for you, is only supporting you. Just imagine how beautiful and wonderful and freeing that can be. I think that's the goal to strive for. That's the hope, right? I think that's kind of what's behind 1 John 4, 18 through 19, which says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. We could even say judgment there. And whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And then, of course, he grounds this in verse 19. It says, we love because he first loved us. So John is talking about our relationship with God right there on this vertical plane, you know, experiencing and knowing the love of God that's been shared through Jesus Christ. And because of that love that God has for us, it casts out any fear that we have in approaching him. We're supposed to have total, absolute vulnerability with God, being able to be naked and bare before God. And and I think what we're seeing here is that same naked openness that we have with God because we know of His perfect love for us. We want to be able to have that on a horizontal level with our spouses, with our wives. And I would even say, hopefully, with a really great, solid Christian friend as well. But I'll have to save that for friendship for another time. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He really talks about this because... If we don't strive for this, the opposite is to harden ourselves. If we don't strive to be vulnerable and open and naked and trusting and trusting ourselves to another person, the opposite is to build up walls, to become calloused, to become hardened. And I love this quote from C.S. Lewis here. He says, love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. That's what happens when you make yourself vulnerable. He says, if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, then you must give your heart to no one not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impregnable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least to the risk of tragedy, is damnation. Let's strive for this unashamed vulnerableness and commitment to trust in our marriages. The alternative is hardened callousness. And I love that word. He's right, absolutely right. Damnation. Almost a self-made damnation and separation from any type of love. So, commitment to trust in our spouses. The last one, and I'm ending here. We're not digging into it because this is moving on to next week. So if you want the end of this sermon, you have to come back next week and be ready. It's the most important. This last point that I have here about the the, the significance of marriage is the most important. It is the significance from which all of the other significant things we've talked about are derived. If we have this, everything else flows out. If we don't have this, everything else that we talked about collapses. If we have this aspect of significance, then commitment to trust is there. If we have this aspect of significance, then creating disciples is there. Okay? And it is this. That the significance, the most ultimate significant thing about marriage is that it is covenant faithfulness on display. The most significant aspect of marriage in God's design and His creation is that it is created to be covenant faithfulness on display. Just read verse 24 here. Like I said, this is the most important verse in the entire Bible when it comes to marriage. It is the verse that is quoted by Jesus in Matthew 19, 
verse that is quoted by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, the other most significant texts in the Bible. And they are building off of this. It says in verse 24, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother. Sometimes we really need to hear that, men. Right? And hold fast, cleave, be fused together to his wife. And they, the two of them, cleave together after they've left their paternal households, then become one flesh. Let me just read that text again. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a verse of covenant faithfulness. A verse that says that husband and wife coming together is not a social convention. It's not some kind of contractual agreement. It's not only there for a temporary period of time, but it is a fusing together. And we're going to look at that more deeply next week. But I do want to say this. I know that there are men and women who are in here today who have had a fused together relationship with someone that has been broken, that has ended, that has ruptured. And I want to say just two things about that because I know that a series on marriage can be very difficult and trying for someone who has gone through that, right? Because let's be honest, the Bible says very high things about marriage. Jesus has a very high view of marriage. Paul has an extraordinarily high view of marriage. The creation has a very high view of marriage. And so when we read these things, and we've come out of a broken relationship, a broken marriage, and we are no longer fused together, we can read them and just almost want to shut down or avoid them. But what I want to suggest to us is two things. First of all, there's forgiveness in everything. So, However, why ever your marriage ended, whether it was biblical or not biblical, and there are, there are biblical reasons for a separation, for a divorce, as Jesus lays out and Paul lays out. But that's not the main reason why most marriages end today, right? They're not biblical reasons. But no matter what it was that led to the separation, to the severance, first and foremost, you need to hear that there is always grace. There's always mercy. There's always forgiveness. There's always freedom from sin. There's always freedom. And it is always there. And God is so gracious and good to continuously pour it out and lavish it upon us. So that's the first thing I want to say. And the second thing I want to say is don't be afraid to feel the hurt that the divorce brought. Don't be afraid to share the hurt that the divorce brought. And the reason I say that is because, look, if this is true, verse 24 is true, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and literally fuse together with his wife. And the two of them should literally become one flesh. If that's what's happening in marriage, then divorce should hurt. Then separation should be really painful and we shouldn't try to avoid that. If you separate, you rip apart this one flesh union, there is going to be a cataclysmic Grand Canyon-esque destruction, overturning, a tidal wave, a hurricane just ripping through your life. And it will scatter everything and disrupt everything. And that's just true because of what marriage is designed to be. And what I'm saying is, don't avoid that, but dig into it, allow the pain to be real, and let that pain be something that you use to be able to teach, train, and equip others. Make sure you're marrying a godly man or woman. Disciple them, equip them. Make sure you pour into and invest into your marriage. Make sure that when you have kids, you don't forsake your spouse, right? Because those are the things that end up building up to divorce. Use that pain and that hurt to be able to instruct and teach others and become a discipler in this world. We really need that today. Because I want us to get back to this in the church. I want us to have a real high, awesome, amazing view of marriage. Not one that idolizes marriage 
but I certainly don't want to have one that dismisses marriage. We can't allow those two views to creep into the church. So, again, as a recap, what are the five significant aspects of marriage that we see here in Genesis chapter 2? First is complementary fellowship. Man and woman created as the same, yet different, yet unique, to be formed together. And they are done so, that is done so, so that they can have cooperation in ministry. Through that cooperation in ministry, there ends up being this creation of disciples. It's a message for November 17th. And in this entire relationship, there's hopefully, prayerfully, a developing commitment to trust. It was right there naturally for them. We have to work on it today. Commitment to trust. And the last one, which is coming up next week in more fullness, marriage is created to be a display of covenant faithfulness. That's what the significance, the most ultimate significant point of marriage, it is a display of covenant faithfulness in this world. If you want some homework to read ahead, Matthew chapter 19 and Ephesians chapter 5. Those are your two passages we'll be looking at next week. Guess what? Ah, Look at that. There's already a little preview for you today. Look, marriage is a beautiful, wonderful, amazing thing created in the economy of God's plan and design it's to be lived for his glory it's to be lived in submission to him it's to be lived so that we can become more and more like him we can become more and more like Christ more and more lovers of others humble in our own lives oh there's just so many beautiful lessons we can learn from marriage let's prioritize it Let's see the significance and the beauty in it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word today. I thank you for your creation and your design in man and woman and Adam and Eve to create them, to make them and mold them and form them for this wonderful partnership and institution that's not only just for them, but is for all of their descendants. Lord, I pray for the men and women here that we would be lovers of marriage. Whether we are in a marriage now, whether we have never been in a marriage, or whether we have felt the pain of a severance of marriage. Lord, I pray that coming from all of our different backgrounds, all of our different childhoods, all of our different life experiences, Lord, that you would still bring us to the place where we all see the beauty of this institution. We see the wonderful harmony that you sought to create. This glorious and momentous union that led Adam to cry out, At last, (laughs) here is the bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Lord, may we all have such a beautiful, wondrous, mountainous view of something that brings you glory and that puts your glory on display in this world. We pray in your Son's heavenly and holy name. Amen.